how one young woman in India envisions her future. It's Friday, March 8th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter. The protests continue in India, demanding safety and more justice for women. That's just one part of India's gender struggles. Today, we'll hear how one young girl is trying to bridge tradition and modernity. And later, a state funeral is held for Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. More than 30 heads of state turned out to bid farewell, including Iran's Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. We'll hear what he had to say, plus why Chavez would probably approve the decision to have his body embalmed and on display for eternity. Physically preserving yourself in the way that Chavez is doing is the, really the most extreme way of, of sticking your tongue out at death. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Aaron Schachter filling in for Marker Werman. This is The World. For the past three months, we've been reporting on a global conversation that began with a horrific crime. The crime was the brutal gang rape and murder of a young woman in New Delhi. Her death sparked a wave of protests in India, demanding an end to violence against women there. And those protests got people all over the world talking about the violence women suffer everywhere. We've been following and contributing to that conversation online at theworld.org under the heading World Gender. And in India, the protests haven't stopped. About 100 women marched in New Delhi today, International Women's Day, calling for tougher sentences for rapists. Such protests have raised awareness about the frequent violence and abuses faced by women in India. But at the same time, a growing number of Indian women are enjoying unprecedented opportunities. They're getting educated, getting jobs, and playing a more prominent role in society than ever before. The world's Ritu Chatterjee grew up in India. She wanted to explore how Indian girls today see their futures, how they choose a path through a shifting cultural landscape. So to better understand what's happening with India's half a billion women and girls, Ritu decided to focus on just one. I met 12-year-old Sarita Meena last year. I was in a remote part of India with some health workers who were interviewing school kids when I noticed a skinny girl in a yellow dress standing to my left. She kept answering questions for other kids. Sarita was surprisingly outgoing. And later on, she offered to give me a tour of the school and village. Her village is called Deoli. It's a tiny place surrounded by vast swaths of farmland. Huts made of stone and mud sit on narrow dirt roads. Sarita's short hair and confidence struck me as unusual in this setting. Her home state, Rajasthan, is culturally conservative. Girls and women here rarely talk to strangers. They're supposed to be quiet and shy. Months later, I decided to explore the changing role of women in India to find out how women are navigating these changes, even in remote corners of the country. So I decided to go back to Sarita's village to meet her again. (laughs) When I visit Sarita's school, it's lunchtime. Some boys are playing on the playground, and there among them is Sarita. 
If it wasn't for her skirt, Sarita might easily pass for another boy on the team. Her hair's even shorter than when I first met her. The kids are playing a game of kabaddi, which involves two warring teams. Sarita's female classmates watch from the sidelines. But Sarita's among the boys, playing aggressively. A generation ago, this would have been impossible. A girl sharing a school playground with boys. In fact, until recently, girls in this village didn't go to school at all. That's changed, thanks to efforts by the government and non-profits to promote girls' education. Still, it's clear that Sarita stands out among the girls. And I can't help wondering how she turned out this way. Her mother, Gayatri Devi, tells me her daughter has always been fearless. She says, if my husband and I are fighting over something small and he blames me, Sarita scolds him. She says, Papa, it's your fault too. She isn't afraid. She scolds him in a loud voice. But I soon realize that Sarita's confidence comes at least partly from her mother. After all, her mother is educated. She grew up elsewhere and studied till junior high. The vast majority of women in this village got no schooling and are illiterate. And Sarita is the first to acknowledge that her mother plays a big role in her life. My mother always tells me, don't let anything disturb you in your studies, she says. When you get older, you can goof off as much as you like. This is your time to study. You won't have this opportunity later. But Sarita's father perhaps has an even stronger influence on her. One day, as I walk with her to school, Sarita tells me how much her father supports her. Did you see how much Papa helps me? She says. If I'm studying, no matter what else is going on, Papa never asks me to help with housework. See, I was studying this morning, right? And did Papa ask me for help? He cooked me breakfast, didn't he? He did cook breakfast, which surprised me. A husband helping his wife in the kitchen is still an uncommon sight in Indian households. Sarita's father, Tulsi Ram Meena, is a tall, reserved man and works as a teacher in a public school. He says he's always wanted Sarita and her two older sisters to get a good education. As a teacher, it's my responsibility to educate my daughters, he says. Five years ago, he moved his two older daughters to a nearby city that had better schools. They're among the handful of girls who've left the village for higher education. He tells me with pride that his oldest daughter is now in college the first girl in the family to study this far. If they can stand on their own two feet, he says, they will live a good life, marry into good homes, and they won't have to depend on anyone. Financial independence is something Sarita aspires to as well. If I have a job, she says, it'll help my family. She says, if I can stand on my own two feet, that's the best thing. And so she takes her schoolwork seriously and hopes to follow in her sister's footsteps and leave the village for higher education. But while she's living with her parents, Sarita also makes herself useful at home. She's constantly looking for ways to help her mother with housework. When I show up one morning at her house, she's in the wide, sunny courtyard stuffing books in her school bag. 
She declares she wants to make chai for us, then dashes off to the corner of the courtyard that serves as the family's kitchen. The kitchen has two stoves, a gas one and a wood stove. Sarita lights up the gas stove, puts on a saucepan and starts to make chai with crushed ginger, cardamom and fresh buffalo milk. At one point she calls out to her mother. Mummy, she says, hurry up and knead the dough. Sarita wants rotis for breakfast and lunch. Then, realizing her mother is running behind with cleaning the house, Sarita turns to the pile of firewood next to her. She takes some twigs, breaks them and lights up the wood stove so she can save her mother some time and work. It strikes me that Sarita's personality has two conflicting sides. Here she is being the traditional dutiful daughter, helping her mother in the kitchen at the tender age of 12. She also loves to sew. She proudly showed me the dozen skirts she's made for her doll. Then there's Sarita the tomboy, who wears her hair short, plays with boys and is ambitious. Her parents tell me that people in the village call her their son. But to Sarita, it's clear that she's a girl and aspects of her life are still defined by tradition. For example, tradition says a girl's real home is not her parents. Her parents are merely looking after her until she gets married. And when she marries, she will move into her husband's home where she'll spend the rest of her life. In traditional Indian society, a man brings his wife home with him and together the couple look after his parents. That's why Sarita desperately wants a brother to look after her parents. Everyone has a brother, she says. I want a brother too. When we three sisters get married and go to our in-laws, then, she says, who's going to be here with mummy? Who's going to make sure she eats well? Now, I grew up in India, in an urban middle-class family. I can't understand why three smart, ambitious daughters are still pining for a brother. After all, if Sarita and her sisters become financially independent, can't they share the task of looking after their parents? So I ask Sarita, Why can't you come and visit your parents after you get married and stay with them periodically? She pushes back. Can you spend all your life with your mother? She asks me. Tell me, when you get married, would you spend the rest of your life with your family? No. I realize that for most women in India, once they're married, they're expected to focus on their new family and not on their parents. That's what my mother did. But I also know families where sisters share the care of aging parents. So I ask Sarita, why couldn't you bring your mother to your new home after you get married? No, she says, that doesn't look nice. My in-laws might not like it. I'm struck by how vehemently this fearless tomboy defends certain traditions. She simply cannot imagine a scenario where her husband and his family might be okay with her looking after her parents. But she does occasionally throw out a radical idea. Maybe she won't get married. Maybe she'll get a job and continue to live with her parents and look after them. Her predicament is one faced by millions of women in India's cities and villages. As new opportunities open up for women, they need to decide for themselves how far they are willing to push against tradition. Doing things in a new way can bring stress and uncertainty. Ultimately, for Sarita and her forward-thinking family, it would be a lot easier if they just had a son. Sarita's mother says people in the village are always nagging her to keep trying for a son. Good then. 
People say you should have at least one boy, she tells me. We didn't think much about this before. We thought girls are good. If we can educate them, we'll find good homes for them to marry into. But these days, she says she does worry about the absence of a son. It's only on my last day here that I realize how much the absence of a son haunts Sarita's mother. Sarita has just returned from spending two days with her sisters in the town where they live now. I'd accompanied her on the trip and had loaned her my camera. Back home, Sarita shows the pictures to her mother. Her mother beams at her daughter. Suddenly, she looks up at me smiling and says this. If only she was a boy, we'd have been so fortunate, she says. Our lives would have been complete. Sarita tugs at her mother's hand, showing her yet another picture. She says, look at my dress. For the world, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Deoli, India. The music you're hearing is part of a video about a day in Sarita's life. You can see it and Sarita's pictures of her family and friends at theworld.org. Also, how have gender roles and stereotypes changed or not where you live? Tell us about an event or experience that has shaped your views on men's and women's roles in society on our World Gender page at theworld.org or tweet with the hashtag WorldGender. Ritu's story was produced in collaboration with PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. It is part of the Global Story Project with support from the Open Society Foundations. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Osama bin Laden's son-in-law appeared before a federal court in New York City today. Suleiman Abu Ghaith pleaded not guilty to a charge of conspiracy to kill Americans. In addition to his personal relationship with bin Laden, Abu Ghaith was an al-Qaeda spokesman. This is the first time such a senior al-Qaeda figure faces a civilian trial in the United States. The move could mark a shift in the legal treatment of terrorism suspects. John Radson is former assistant general counsel at the CIA. Uh, Mr. Radson, how big a fish is uh, Suleiman Abu Ghaith? From what I've gathered, the consensus is that he was a mid-level player in al-Qaeda. He was not at the high operational levels the way Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was, who was in our custody. He did propaganda. He asked people to join So I would put him somewhere in the middle. So he's a significant catch, but he is not close to the top of al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri. And and the charges in this case are what? The conspiracy charges to uh, have people join a global conflict against us. And I've uh, glanced at the indictment, and it doesn't seem that he is uh, specifically tied to plots. But many times people can go from a propagandist role to an operational role, and sometimes that division of labor is not quite clear. Now, uh, what also remains unclear is how exactly Abu Ghaith was picked up and how he wound up in U.S. custody. What do we know so far? What we know according to the reporting is that at some point, 
Gaith left Iran, where he was being held under a sort of house arrest. He went to Turkey. The Turkish authorities arrested him. They alerted American authorities. And then there was a discussion about our taking custody. And from what I can tell, the Turkish authorities did not want to turn him over directly to American custody. And a compromise solution was found. And it seems that the compromise was to have the turnover occur in Amman, Jordan, where we have good relations with the Jordanian authorities to bring them back. Now, there are a couple big aspects to this case. The first is simply that Abu Ghaith was picked up. The other important part of this case is that he's being brought to federal court in New York City. What kind of shift does that represent? The attorney general has made clear, going back to his announcement of trying to bring a trial against Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and some others, that he believes the civilian courts are adequate for handling high-level terrorists. We still as a country have not settled how we're going to deal with these kind of captures. Are we going to hold them indefinitely as enemy combatants? Will we try them in a military commission? Or will we bring them to a regular district court, a civilian court? And what then is the great concern about having trials in the United States as opposed to Guantanamo? The people that oppose trials in civilian courts will identify two or three concerns. One, they'll say the security, that it's more difficult to protect a federal courthouse than it would be to protect a Guantanamo military base from attacks by al-Qaeda sympathizers. They'll also mention that the evidentiary requirements in a regular trial make it more difficult for the government to protect secret sources and methods of intelligence. It's easier to protect that kind of information in a secret tribunal. Our district courts are about full transparency. We have the rule against hearsay. And then a third concern that people have, and this goes back to a foundational debate, are we at war against al-Qaeda or is it a law enforcement problem at this stage? John Radson, former assistant general counsel at the CIA and currently associate professor, William Mitchell College of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. Vultures get a bad rap. Sure, they eat rotting carcasses and they seem to signal death, but they do help prevent the spread of disease. And in the eastern Radopi Mountains in Bulgaria, they bring in tourist money. From Manjarovo, Matthew Brunwasser reports. Walking along the craggy gorges of the Arda River, Petr Kalajiev is showing me around the Eastern Rodopi Nature Reserve, otherwise known as the Vulture Center. So we'll go up the stairs through the forest. We will see some bones around uh, the path that we go. They came from the feeding ground because uh, when people in the region who raise animals have a dead animal, uh, they call us and we go and take it for free and bring it here uh, so that vultures can uh, use it for food and uh, we can observe them. I think uh, there was a corpse one week ago, but it's now mostly skin and bones. We're heading up the hill to a wooden viewing station. When we get there, Kalajiev scans the skies through a telescope and says you need luck to get close to a vulture. They're usually cautious and shy, especially if they're not hungry. This is, ah, I see two Egyptian vultures. So you can watch them through the telescope. Uh, They have landed on a rock just uh, near the feeding ground, but uh, we cannot hear them from here. There was a period that uh, there were only five breeding couples in the eastern adopts of the griffon vultures. That was the time that uh, people started to feed them artificially, and 
the protected areas were made. Now the population is uh, increasing, slowly but surely. Hawks and eagles get better press, but Kalajiev says he likes vultures. He is impressed by how four different species can share the same habitat and eat the same carcasses without competing. The Egyptian vultures are smaller and bolder and live more spread out than the others, so they are usually the first to arrive at a corpse. Egyptian vultures cannot uh, open the body because uh, their beaks are not strong enough to tear the skin. And they fly in circles and uh, give signals to the other species to come and start feeding and open the body. So uh, the griffon vultures lack the internal organs and the black vultures eat part of the meat and the skin. And later the Egyptian vulture goes and takes what's left on the bones and the most uh, far to reach places because it's smaller and uh, can go inside the corpse. We walk toward the tiny photographer's hut, offering clear views of the feeding ground 50 feet away, where the reserve leaves carcasses to attract vultures. You can smell the corpse. Watching the rocky cliffs of the Rodopi Mountains from the tiny shack, not a single vulture, but it doesn't seem to matter. Kalajiev says locals are thankful for the vultures and their extra-strength stomach acids. They are very important because, especially here in the eastern Rodopes, in the summer it becomes very hot. Uh, when animals die, many diseases occur. It can be very dangerous. And vultures uh, are like sterilizers. They go and eat the meat and only bones remain. And they manage to kill almost all of the bacteria and uh, their spores, which are sometimes very highly resistant. They even uh, managed to disintegrate the spores of anthrax, which is a highly uh, dangerous disease in cattle and also to human. The vultures also bring bird-watching tourists, an increasingly important source of income in this poor and depopulated region. While most people might associate vultures with death, locals in Majarovo see them as bringers of life. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Majarovo. Bulgaria. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, we remember Canada's stompin' Tom Connors, and later we hear about the best way to prepare for a plague of locusts. Actually, a plate of locusts. Rich in protein, rich in iron, low in fat. Just pop it in your mouth, you crunch, it's great. Mmm, locusts. Coming up on The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Aaron Schachter, filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Thousands attended the funeral of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez today. At times, the ceremony had a folksy feeling, in keeping with Chavez's self-crafted image as father of the nation. More than 30 heads of state were there. Many were Chavez allies from around Latin America, like Cuba's Raul Castro, Others came from farther afield, like Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus and Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. He said he considered Chavez a brother. 
Chavez was a dear friend to all countries, Ahmadinejad said, before adding that the spirit of President Chavez will be watching us and will help us from the heavens. Mohammed Manzapour of the BBC's Persian service is in Caracas to cover the funeral and the Iranian president's visit. He says Venezuelans view Ahmadinejad's presence according to their political affiliation. There are those who are obviously among more affluent parts of the Caracas society, the middle classes, the people who are typically more critical of the ruling Socialist Party, who have been even making jokes about Ahmadinejad's presence in Mr. Chavez's funeral. They're saying with Ahmadinejad and President Lukashenko of Belarus attending the ceremony, they only need Darth Vader from Star Wars to complete the cast of the evil uh, conspirators. On the other hand, I mean, I have also spoken to President Chavez's supporters here and there in the city who praise President Ahmadinejad for being um, comrade in the global war against imperialism, and they have a lot of respect for President Ahmadinejad. And uh, conversely, in your experience, what do Iranians make of Chavez? Do most of them know who he was? Most people know President Chavez. Again, very much like Venezuela, the Iranian public opinion is also divided among political lines. The people who are critical of President Ahmadinejad, or even the Islamic Republic as a whole, were not fond of President Chavez, but others who are closer to the government and state in Iran viewed Venezuela under President Chavez as a strategic ally for Iran. As you know, Iran has made some major investments in Venezuela. They've set up a, a car manufacturing factory here, also a tractor manufacturing factory, and they cherish this relationship. Finally, uh, Mohammed Ahmadinejad has made some quite controversial statements about Chavez's death and uh, resurrection. Tell us what he said and, and how the remarks are being received back home. Well, basically, President Ahmadinejad said something to the meaning of President Chavez was among the chosen few who will be brought back to life in the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of time with the 12th imam, the hidden imam of the Shiite faith. And this has apparently ruffled some feathers among senior clerics in Iran. Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi has come out and said people who are not versed in religious studies shouldn't be making comments. Sorry, Mohammed, is that strange uh, to compare a secular communist leader to uh, the 12th imam of Shia Islam or to Jesus Christ? It certainly is strange, but we've seen stranger things from President Ahmadinejad. But I would think it's probably the first time that a non-Muslim has been described as one of the few who would be resurrected. So it is unprecedented in that sense, and it signifies the very close relationship that President Ahmadinejad enjoyed with President Chavez. Mohammed Manzapur is the BBC's Persian Service Washington Bureau editor. He spoke with us from Caracas, where he's covering the funeral of Hugo Chavez. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. The U.S. didn't send any high-ranking officials to Chavez's funeral. Relations with the late Venezuelan leader weren't exactly friendly. In fact, there's currently no U.S. ambassador in Caracas. The last one was Patrick Duddy. 
The antipathies were real. It wasn't just political theater. Ambassador Duddy knows about those antipathies all too well. He served two stints as America's representative in Venezuela. In between, he was expelled by the Chavez regime. On the other hand, there's plenty to work with, you know, when and if the two sides are ready to sit down and talk. Partially, that's because of the economic data, and partially because of shared history, commonalities between the two countries, etc. I I understand what you're saying, that the antipathy was genuine, but at the same time, as you point out, there's a robust trade relationship between the two countries. Chavez never stopped selling us oil, and we never stopped buying, you say. Tens of thousands of Venezuelans visit the U.S. each year. We have a shared love of baseball. It seems to me a whole lot of sturm und drang that was part of the political culture there, but didn't necessarily hinder things all that much, although you had to move out when you were kicked out. Yeah, indeed I did. I suppose that it might be fair to underscore that the sharp divide was essentially political. And let me emphasize that I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. I'm, I'm no longer in active service and in no way speak for the U.S. government. That said, you know, it's worth noting that the U.S. has frequently in recent years expressed its deep concern over the fact that Venezuela does not cooperate with the United States. At the same time, President Chavez understood that, or or decided, I suppose it would be better to say, that it was in his interest to stake out a territory as a challenger to what he saw as the predominance of the United States. Now, we're certainly speaking about uh, Mr. Chavez from uh, a U.S.-centric point of view, how, how he affected our relationship and so on. You, you're retired now. You, you can speak freely. Was he good for Venezuela and for the region? In general, his economic program did not yield the results that he and his supporters hoped it would. He undeniably had some success in reducing poverty, but the country has now had years of very high inflation. Seen regionally, there was a time when President Chavez's commitment to an advocacy for the poor resonated um, with the poor throughout the region. But at the same time, it was clear, for instance, during the, the global financial crisis, that Venezuela basically fell further and was mired in the crisis longer than most of the other uh, significant economies in Latin America. And I think his economic model in particular lost much of its attraction. Patrick Duddy was the U.S. ambassador to Venezuela twice. Currently, he's at Duke University Center for International Studies. No matter what his political legacy, Hugo Chavez is joining a select group of deceased world leaders whose followers just can't let go. Here's how Venezuela's interim president, Nicolas Maduro, announced that Chavez's body will be embalmed for posterity. Just like Ho Chi Minh, like Lenin, like Mao Zedong, the body of our president and commander will be embalmed in the Museum of the Revolution so he can be viewed in a glass coffin so that our people can have him forever, forever, always there for the people. Stephen Cave has thought a lot about leaders laying in state forever. He's the author of Immortality, the Quest to Live Forever. Stephen, I understand that Russian biochemists have extended an offer to Venezuela to help embalm Chavez. Now they've successfully preserved Lenin's body for nearly 90 years. Let's just start, if you would. How does this work? Well, first you have to drain all of somebody's bodily fluids and you have to replace them with something a bit like formaldehyde so that the natural processes of decay, which are extremely difficult to stop, are held back. 
but you do need to keep going back year after year and, and repairing the corpse and making sure that nature isn't taking its course. How did this tradition of embalming leaders and uh, putting them on display even begin? Well, embalming has a very ancient history, but it really has a particular significance for socialist revolutionaries. And the precedent here is, of course, Lenin. Revolutions are often driven by these very charismatic personalities. And so when these charismatic people die, the revolution experiences a crisis. And one way of trying to overcome that crisis is to say, look, the great leader isn't really dead. When Lenin died... One of the great Soviet poets, Vladimir Mayakovsky, proclaimed, Lenin, even now, is more alive than all the living. How did this practice catch on? As I say, it started with Lenin, but then it caught on very quickly. It was clear then to other socialist revolutionary leaders that this is a way to project power beyond the grave. And so Mao Zedong and other socialist leaders followed in Lenin's footsteps. Of course, Stalin also did and was briefly lying next to Lenin until he fell out of favour and was uh, taken away and quietly buried. I mean, that's the risk, of course. Uh, On the one hand, these leaders want to say, look, I'm still here, but if they fall out of favour, then their shrine is going to be dismantled and they're going to be unceremoniously dumped somewhere. Do you know if this was Chavez's wish? No, we don't know if it is Chavez's wish. It doesn't seem to have been Lenin's wish either. When Lenin died, a committee was set up called the Immortalization Commission, who had to solve this problem of what do we do now our great leader has died. I mean, it could well be that Chavez's followers have come to the same decision, but it could equally be that he himself wanted this. I mean, many powerful people strive for immortality in all sorts of ways. You've written a book on the quest to live forever. Take me on a tour, if you would, of where world leaders have attempted to do this. Some of the greatest monuments of human civilization are leaders living out their will to live forever. We just have to think of the pyramids, these massive monuments to our desire to defy death. From then, we go to China, where the first emperor of China, this is the guy who built the Great Wall of China, the terracotta army is only a tiny part of a massive complex that he built in order to immortalize himself. All people want to immortalize themselves in some way. We can't all uh, hope to build great pyramids, but a pharaoh can. We can't all hope to have ourselves embalmed and a temple built around us in the middle of Venezuela, but Chavez can. One makes me a little more squeamish than the other. You know, <laughs> you know, you, 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 there's an orphanage or a, a wing of a hospital on one hand and putting yourself under glass on the other. I think physically preserving yourself in the way that Chavez is doing is the really the most extreme way of sticking your tongue out at death. You know, the ancient Egyptians, according to some estimates, spent 50% of their wealth on the industry of mummifying. For most of us, it's just not an option. But for those who can, the temptation to actually physically stay present seems very strong. Stephen Cave is the author of Immortality, The Quest to Live Forever. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Close to 5,000 Palestinians are currently being held in Israeli jails. One of them is Mohammed Sabahaneh. He's a political cartoonist for a Palestinian newspaper. Israeli authorities detained Sabahaneh on February 16th while he was returning from a four-day trip to Jordan. But he hasn't been charged yet. Under Israeli military law, Palestinians in the occupied West Bank can be held for 90 days without charge, and detention can be indefinite. 
Uri Fink is an Israeli comic book artist and political cartoonist. He's frustrated that Israel has not said why they're holding Mohammed Sabahani. I think uh, what uh, Mohammed did, he did more to expose the prisoner problem in Israel more than any of his cartoons because even for me it was uh, the whole procedure of uh, arresting people on the West Bank and detaining them and uh, the, the, the sad thing is sometimes they get arrested and released after a few years and nobody even know why they were arrested in the first place. All this circus, you know, of the justice system in the occupied territories. You mean the, the issue and of the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails? Yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole uh, you know, they, they say that uh, military justice is to justice what uh, military music is to music. You know, that's what they say. <laughs> so, it's, so it's the same thing, you know. It's, it's terrible. It's, it's absurd, and I hope it, it ends soon. Uri Mohammed Sabane is a Palestinian cartoonist. Um, how would you describe his work? I think his work is very good, first of all. I think he's a very good cartoonist. Uh, I, I must say his, his works are not pleasant to any Israeli, you know, but his imagery is much more sophisticated than you usually see in Arab cartoons when he describes Israel or the situation. Uh, he also is very sensitive, very, uh, you know, uh, his colors is very mature, you know, and I, I very much enjoy his cartoons, although I don't agree with some of them, obviously, but, uh, but I think he has a very unique way of expressing himself. And he's a relatively young man, isn't he? Yeah, and it's very surprising. It's very encouraging to see such high level of uh, craftsmanship in, in such a young young uh, cartoonist. Does he make what Israelis might consider offensive cartoons? I don't. I, I saw one with the Angel of Death with the Star of David on him. That's the only thing I remember that's really, really offensive. I thought it was uh, a bit much. But usually, I think he he most of all describes the the pain of the the plight of the Palestinian prisoners. I mean, he most of all describes pain and uh, suffering more than uh, how evil Israel is. So I think that's, that's more, more justified and more accurate than, than usually. I mean, that's the, the, the unique thing here, I see, because I was, uh, when I heard he was arrested, I was expecting to see these horrible anti-Semitic cartoons, but then I, I opened and I saw very sensitive, very, you know, cultured cartoons. He was detained, Mohammed Sabahane was detained on uh, February 16th while crossing the Allenby Bridge on his way back from a four-day visit to Jordan. Is there any indication about why he was detained? That's the thing that's really, uh, I think, most bizarre about this case. It's not not because it's bizarre, I think it's it's mainly stupid because... uh, why don't they tell us, you know, why, why he was arrested for? Because so far, the situation now is as bad as it can be because the whole cartoonist community worldwide is up in arms because of this arrest. Everybody is sure that he is arrested because of his cartoons. And as far as I know, Israel has not ever arrested anybody because of cartoons, even in the, in the West Bank. I don't think it ever happened. And uh, freedom of speech is very important here in Israel. So I really don't know. I mean, it, it does so much damage to Israel at this moment when you don't know, you don't have any contact with him to know what's going on. I think that's the worst that can happen as far as Israel is concerned, what the situation now. I, I wish there would be an official statement from the state of Israel to say why he was arrested. Uri Fink is a political cartoonist and the creator of the Israeli comic series Zvang. Uri, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. 
Can you name Israel's southern desert? It lies just east of Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. That's our GeoQuiz in a nutshell today. And it's inspired by news this week that Israel is battling swarms of locusts. The insects have blown into Israel from Sinai, just as they've done for thousands of years in this desert region. Just think of the locust plagues mentioned in the Bible. This week, Israeli planes sprayed pesticides to prevent damage to fields and fruit orchards. This is going on in the region of the Negev Desert, which is the answer to our quiz. So the locusts can damage crops by munching on them. But wait, they can also wind up on a dinner plate. I think they're fascinating. That's Ronit Treatment, who writes a food blog called The Kosher Table for the Philadelphia Jewish Voice. And she's here to tell us that locusts are both kosher and tasty. The reason that they're kosher is just as in the Torah, that there are four types of locusts that were permitted to eat. They're all desert locusts. And the way they're described is the yellow locust, the red locust, the spotted gray locust, and the white locust. So what that means is that, like fish, it's permitted to cook them with milk. There's no requirement of ritual slaughter. And the third requirement for locusts to be kosher is there has to be a living tradition of eating them. It has to be something in the community. So if you're not part of a community where locusts are eaten, you're not really supposed to do that. But if you're a guest in a community where they are eaten, then you're allowed to partake as well. It suggests that the Torah, the Old Testament, was kind of geared toward life there in the desert, wasn't it? Exactly. I think that it, it was sort of a matter of survival. If the locusts came and they ate everything, then, you know, what were people supposed to do? And it's interesting, in, in ancient times, the way locusts were eaten, it was sort of like the Roman garum. Garum was like a preserved kind of anchovy, and locusts traditionally were either pickled in vinegar or salted to preserve them so they would last a long time and carry people through through the, the famine. Are they rich in protein or anything like that? Very, very healthy. Rich in protein, rich in iron, low in fat, and uh, compared to... Other sources of protein, they have six times as much protein as beef. They make a lot less pollution. And, uh, you know, I purchased mine online. It came from a locust farm in, in Thailand. It's a really good micro business for women. I mean, it takes very little startup capital, takes up very little space. They don't pollute. You know, I, I think it should be something that people eat more. I think we should stop being so snobby about insects. Why are they still kind of icky for most Jews? And, and most I people, because I guess. The, during the middle, middle Ages, uh, people in Europe stopped eating them. And so then it just became considered something kind of repulsive. But actually, they're not icky. I tasted them. They're really delicious. They taste like roasted sunflower seeds. Yeah, with enough oil or something. No, they didn't need oil. They're actually dry roasted. They don't need the oil. They're very, very good. And depending where you live, people have different ways of spicing them. So in Mexico, people tend to spice them with chili, with lime. Uh, if you go in Far East Asia... They put uh, ginger and soy sauce. They're very good. Just pop it in your mouth. You crunch. It's great. Okay. You should try it sometime. What is the correct way or the best way to prepare locusts? You can uh, fry them. You can uh, spice them. You can salt them or pickle them in vinegar. That's an antiquity. You do any uh, locust shish kebabs? or? You could do that. The last time there was a... Plague of locusts, a few years ago, they came to a lot. There were different uh, newspapers in Israel that published different recipes, and one was to make them like French fries, deep fry them in peanut oil with salt and pepper and ketchup. And the other one was you could make shish kebabs. You just blanch them, then you put them on a skewer and uh, over charcoal. Was that a big hit with the tourists in Eilat? <laughs> I think it's probably a conversation piece. You know, I think everybody wants to say, and I ate a locust, <laughs> or at least pose with it. <laughs> 
Ronit Treatman, food editor at the Philadelphia Jewish Voice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Some musicians spend their careers trying to break into the American market. They do endless U.S. tours, and they expend their energy trying to woo an American recording label. And then there are those artists who just don't. The world's unofficial Canada desk, Andrea Crossan, has this remembrance of just such a man. My nation is in mourning over the loss of a musical legend. Tributes have been pouring in from across Canada. Even Prime Minister Stephen Harper hailed the singer as a true Canadian original. At this point, you're probably wondering who I'm talking about. Well, here's a hint. That's Stompin' Tom Connors singing one of his hits, Sudbury Saturday Night. Yes, I know, you still don't know who I'm talking about. There's a reason for that. Stompin' Tom Connors, a nickname he got for his habit of stomping the heel of his left boot to keep rhythm, wrote and sung exclusively about Canada. Stompin' Tom was born in St. John, New Brunswick in 1936. He was raised in an orphanage. At the age of 15, he struck out on his own, hitchhiking across the country. He traveled from town to town, picking up odd jobs and playing the guitar. It's where he got the stories for his songs, like this one. It's Bud the Spud from the bright red mud, rolling down a highway smiling. The Spuds are big on the back of Bud's rig. They're from Prince Edward Island. They're from Prince Edward Island. Now from Charlottetown or from Summerside, they load him down for the big long ride. He jumps in the cab and he's off with the pride of Eagles. He's got to catch the boat to make Parmentine, and he hits up that old New Brunswick line. To Montreal, he comes just a flying with another big load of potatoes. It's Bud the Spud from the bright red mud, rolling down the highway smiling. The Spuds are big on the back of Bud's rig. They're from Prince Edward Island. They're from Prince Edward Island. Stompin' Tom Connors was fiercely loyal to his true North strong and free. Unlike most Canadian musicians, he shunned the American music industry. He only toured and recorded in Canada. In 1978, he denounced Canadians who sought American success, calling them border jumpers and turncoat Canadians. And he retired from writing and recording for more than a decade because of what he saw as the Americanization of his industry. He also gave back his six Juno Awards, the Canadian version of the Grammys. He did it as a protest against artists who conducted most of their business in the U.S. being nominated for Junos in Canada. So Stompin' Tom may not be known to Americans, but he had a legion of Canadian fans. It's said that Connors smoked 100 cigarettes a day and loved to drink what else but moosehead beer. And on tour, just like Bud the Spud, he would be at the wheel of the truck. Stompin' Tom Connors wrote these words just before he passed. It was a long, hard, bumpy road, but this great country kept me inspired with its beauty, character, and spirit, driving me to keep marching on and devoted to sing about its people and places that make Canada the greatest country in the world. For the world, I'm Andrea Crossan. Hello out there, we're on the air, it's hockey night tonight. Tension grows, the whistle blows, and the puck goes down the ice. 
the goalie jumps, the players bump, the fans all go insane. Someone roars, Bobby scores at the good old hockey game. Ah, the good old hockey game. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston. I'm Aaron Schechter. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. Second period. Where a player's dash the World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org. The Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.